0: Hi everyone, welcome back. This is Still Radical Doubt, where we don't hold any truths to be self-evident. As befits this show, I hesitated about continuing the podcast, well, about 5 seconds. But since I have so many cool ideas that I want to talk about, I'm just gonna go ahead with it. Who knows, maybe some, some other weirdo out there will like to listen to it. Let me warn you in advance though, this episode is not to be taken too seriously for it builds on a topic that I don't know any more about than the next man. It concerns the new variations of coronavirus that lately emerged out of India. But rest assured, I'm not going to give you any depressing updates on that matter, let alone any virological insight, god forbid. I don't want to talk about the virus per se even, rather, I'd love to do some wild speculation on the crazy possibilities it opens up. Out-of-the-box thinking, after all, is what this show is all about. But before we start, my apologies if you have lost a loved one because of this terrible disease. The most interesting times are often the worst for the people being affected by it, and this is no exception. Yet that knowledge doesn't lessen my fascination, and I think most people will feel the same way, so I'm gonna do it anyway. Don't worry, this is not a comedy show, I'm not going to mock the victims or anything. Here's what I wanted to talk to you about. There has been a ton of speculation about which changes foisted upon us during the pandemic are likely to live on after this nightmare is finally over. Will Zoom meetings stay in vogue? Will it remain taboo to shake hands, blah blah blah? But what I never read is which of these innovations is likely to continue if there were no post-Covid future. Now that a new vaccine-resistant variation has popped up, this may be the perfect time to consider this depressing possibility. I know pharmaceutical companies predicted this, and they keep reassuring us that they can quickly adapt their formulas. So we're told not to panic, and I don't, by the way. But we're also told we're likely to see ever more resistant variations popping up. And the way most countries, including my own, go about it, We have zero chance of keeping them out, zero chance. Now imagine for a second that the virus keeps evolving faster than pharmaceutical companies can adapt. Imagine humanity losing this race. Imagine being told to sit out the current situation until COVID evolves into something more akin to regular flu. This might take decades. Perhaps it's just as well that such scenarios of doom are seldom, if ever, discussed in the open. After all, we don't want people to lose courage now, do we? And I'm not saying I think this is likely to happen, not at all. The thing is, if this eventuality did come to pass, then we should be ready for it. For if we are unprepared, we're likely to react stupidly. Like we do whenever another terrorist attack happens. And this example shows why it's not a good idea to leave the task of thinking ahead to the government. The Bush administration was surprisingly well-prepared to exploit something like 9-11. The Patriot Act, as a figure of speech, was lying ready in a drawer somewhere, with as an attachment the catchphrases needed to sell the war on terror to the public. This turned out nicely for a government that clearly didn't like restrictions, but dare I say, not so much for the American people in the long run. My point being... We, the people, should think about this sort of stuff in advance. So which of today's rules do you think would remain in place if it became clear that COVID wasn't going anywhere? And perhaps more interestingly, which new phenomena would emerge? The first item on my list has to do with borders and globalization. The EU and America have more scientific know-how than anyone else, yet they've done a lousy job controlling the pandemic. I wonder, why is that, apart from the actions of certain presidents who shall remain nameless? Does the fault lie with democracy, as China would have us believe? Well, let me just point out that next-door Taiwan has done an even better job, as have other democracies. Then what is the reason for the West's failings? I think it's hardly controversial to suggest that the countries that have done a good job are the ones that have sealed off their borders tightly. China or New Zealand, for instance, leave nothing to chance when it comes to importing the virus. Whenever a case is detected, eventually, strict lockdowns kick in, in a very large region, until the problem goes away. The EU, however, does the exact opposite. On the one hand, it doesn't even try to coordinate policies. On the other, it demands that borders stay open. If Member State A finally relaxes after a long lockdown, While country B next door is just going into lockdown, Europe has demanded that people from B can cross into A for shopping or drinking. Small wonder the virus keeps circulating. Also, Europe is the only entity that can effectively enforce the closure of airports. For if Austria did this on its own, people would simply drive to Germany and fly from there. But the EU wouldn't dream of keeping planes on the ground. So, real story... In country B, people couldn't say goodbye to their dying parents. They could, however, step, step onto a crowded plane to country C. Aboard the aircraft, they'd enter a bubble of a few hundred people, but not before mingling with dozens of other such bubbles at the entrance hall. I'm normally tempted to cut lawmakers some slack in these times. It's a thankless jo- job right now. But yeah, solid policy, that. In the US it's hardly better. Some states were strict, others acted as if it were all a hoax. And of course, you could still travel a volonté. No one claims this is the whole story, but it sure as hell goes a long way explaining why the West has done and continues to do such a lousy job. Now why is it that decision makers don't even want to contemplate closing borders or airports? The dogma of free movement is one reason. The EU fears if it lets that one slip, it might never come back. And it might be right. A second answer lies with lobbies. Not only the air travel industry, but the tourist industry, on which whole countries depend, might go bankrupt. On a smaller side, the reason certain lobby groups are so powerful is because they have done well out of the status quo in the past. It's a self-reinforcing cycle. But that makes me suspect that the opposite also holds. If the travel industry went down, so would its political influence. If that were to happen, can you imagine us ever returning to a world in which air travel is more lightly taxed than travel by car? I've always been fascinated by this fact. It's one of the most obvious examples of the poor subsidizing the leisure of the rich and a very destructive one to boot. The pandemic makes this injustice worse poor people are not the ones flying to ski resorts, thereby importing new variations of coronavirus but it is they and their children who suffer the most from this pandemic it's one thing to work from home in your villa with a nice garden it's quite another if you're locked away with a crying baby and two frustrated teens in a cramped apartment without a computer or or a television or to have to expose yourself to a virus on the bus on your way to your essential job, working at the supermarket. Internationally, the wealth gap is even worse. Poor countries are in a bad position to buy vaccines, obviously, and good luck trying to keep a social distance in the slums of New Delhi. For the record, knowing this doesn't stop me from liking to travel myself. But one of these months, I plan to do an episode on hypocrisy. I just read an article which said that, already, 80% of the public thought that forbidding non-essential travel would be necessary. If it turned out that the vaccine wouldn't offer a solution, I could imagine that they would force their government to make this a reality, in other words, to adopt a more China-like approach to travel. Then we could end up with a sealing off of continental blocks. In the EU, this might lead to a split between Northern countries, fearful of importing the disease, and Southerners dependent on tourism. Perhaps at some point, when the epidemic got under control in the rich West, and maybe China, their blocs could unite. But third world countries, where such policies are impossible to implement, and which would be the main source of new variations, they would likely be cut loose, permanently locked out. The most interesting and frightening question, then, is what would become of these poor places. Perhaps something as dreadful as what happened in Europe during the Black Death, with more than half the population dying. It might lead to a complete collapse of society. In medieval Europe, Jews were accused of poisoning the wells. In present-day India, vile rumors are circulating already that Muslims are spreading the virus. If people die in large numbers, such superstitions can lead to terrible bloodshed. People would, of course, try to flee to the rich world in greater numbers than today. And how would these refugees be greeted, as, they, as there was a big chance that they might be carrying a highly contagious and deadly disease? I'm afraid it wouldn't be pretty. What about the very long run? When the bubonic plague finally subsided in Europe, it was a completely different place. Many people had left the labor market because they were, well, dead. So labor was suddenly scarce, so its price went up. While in the beginning this led to political turmoil, eventually the survivors were in general better off. In our time, this would reverse a pattern of globalization, which implies that the bargaining power of workers is constantly undermined, since employers can move to places where they have fewer obligations and workers have fewer rights. On the other hand, globalization has its advantages. In a less globalized world, prices would be higher, for instance, also for the poor. And even if you think the net result would be positive, that doesn't mean the catastrophe that would have to come about first would be worth it. That would be akin to saying that millions dying of COVID is just fine because it helps the climate. I am, of course, not saying anything of the sort. I just want to open your mind to how different the world might yet become because of this pandemic we are living through right now. I guess I've already entered the realm of science fiction, but I warned you, didn't I? (laughs) On the other hand, if vaccines wouldn't be able to tame this monster, which is still a possibility, would it be science fiction then? In the words of a Dutch comedian, if it were reality, would it still be hypothetical? (laughs) Now that I'm at it, let's go one step further still. Let's venture into the realm of proper fiction. What if at a certain point, immunity in the third world would be near complete, while Westerners would still be just as vulnerable for lack of exposure? Would racial prejudices then get a new viral dimension? Likely. Might even a Columbus-like moment happen later on with the inhabitants of the rich world as the new Indians? As you will recall, America was mostly conquered by biological warfare. I suspect that the main reason this is not contemplated today, except perhaps by a country like North Korea, is that it's like a suicide attack, no? It will come back to to bite you. Except, of course, if your own population is immune to the weapon. In a dystopian world where the West leaves the third world to its fate, the chickens might eventually come home to roost. Again, I don't know if any of this stuff is even remotely possible, for as I said, I don't know much about viruses. But if you do and you have something interesting to say about it, or some other wild possibility, feel free to share your thoughts at com. I might mention your idea in an upcoming show. There's one more topic I wanted to bring up, one that is only remotely linked to the disease, But there is a clear link in my mind, and it's one of my pet issues, so I'm going to throw it out there. Let me first ask you this. If we were told we'd have to live with the virus for a very long time, no end in sight, would the ways to cope with this not quickly become a new political divide, one that might soon become bigger than all other issues combined? Hear me out. People have, until now, been motivated by intrinsic motivation and carrots, rather than sticks. The stick is hardly an effective tool at the moment, for you cannot control what people are doing behind closed doors. Not if you don't want to live in a police state, that is. The intrinsic motivation is obviously that you don't want to become sick, and more importantly, you don't want to infect others who might then die. Finally, the carrot is the realm of freedom on the horizon. But what if this carrot turns out to be a Fata Morgana? How many people will then lose their intrinsic motivation? And how do you think your government would react to that? With more sticks? Would there be a public debate, perhaps a referendum, to decide what to do? Well, I wouldn't be in favor of that, for the same reason that I'm not a fan of referendums in general. It's too blunt an instrument. It only lends itself to simple questions like, should the police stop enforcing social distancing altogether, or something like that, And as with most political questions, there are far too many nuances and possible answers. For instance, and I don't know if this has been tried anywhere, you might also say such and such are the rules of social distancing, any business that can guarantee this, put up an official label, all the other places you can enter at your own risk. Bartenders without terraces, you may be re-educated so you can become social distancing consultants or inspectors. What I mean with this silly example, folks, is that there are a gazillion possible solutions. A referendum cannot pick between these. You could leave it to political parties, of course. But then it becomes even more interesting. For parties are usually built around a certain dividing issue. Social benefits, corporate taxes, migration... But what if virus control became by far the most important concern for most people? The argument of people that even now disregard social distancing rules is that quality of life is so much more important than quantity. This would be valid if choosing quality didn't imply the risk of destroying other people's lives by infecting them, people who might prefer to live for a while longer. Your freedom to swing your fist stops where the other guy's nose begins, right? but that argument can work the other way too. Just because you don't mind spending the rest of your life in your big comfortable home with your swimming pool doesn't mean I should be locked up in my small apartment. Might this sooner rather than later change the political landscape with the quality of life party fighting it out with the staying alive party? How would you vote? And how would the public at large? It might be that the Life Quality Camp grew over time, because everyone got so sick of it all. It might just as well be that people got used to living isolated lives. We are creatures of habit after all. I can see signs of this all around me. Imagine the risk of us getting their way, and lockdowns continuing indefinitely. Certain sectors, like restaurants and bars, have, in my country at least, been kept alive with government aid. At what point would it be decided that most of the entertainment sector had no future whatsoever, and so should just go bankrupt? Can you imagine the announcement? The days of drinking and dancing and partying are over, forever. Get used to it. How would fun-loving people react? Some might turn to terrorism, but I suspect most would gather in secret underground bars or something. This happens today also, of course. But in a situation where most people are forcibly kept in Chinese-style lockdown, it would be much more taboo than it is now, like times a thousand. Would the police be given more tools to check on people in their own houses? Without the carrots, would the government add more sticks to the equation? Now imagine the quality-of-life extremists getting their way. What would this mean for the fearful and the frail? What about the old? I don't need to tell you that old people run a much higher risk of dying from COVID while on average young people suffer more from missing out on social contacts. They've been asked to sacrifice more than a year of the best time of their lives. On top of that, I don't feel like they get much gratitude for their sacrifices on the, on the contrary. How many more years will they be willing to give up for people who didn't have to put up with any of this when they were young? On top of that, they would have a good case to argue that older generations, as a group, have not shown the same solidarity towards them. In much of the rich world, careers tend to end about si- around 60. Pensions are high, wages rise with age, and property is slightly taxed. Many youngsters may never be able to buy a house. Government debt is piled up. Local examples are legion. In Britain, for instance, the young wanted overwhelmingly to stay in the EU. Tough luck! In the US, young people who get out of college are deep in debt. In my own country, owners of corporations used to be taxed on accumulated earnings in their firm the moment they chose to liquidate it. But now, they can choose to pay a lighter tax today and pay nothing later. This is good for today's budget, but what about tomorrow? My country's tax code is full of such examples, I don't know about others. Finally, there is the climate, but this I find is a little different since young people like to consume and hence pollute just as much as the old. It's not hard to see why in the rich world policy tends to favor the older cohorts. The baby boom generation carries the most electoral weight and politicians know this, so they make no policy that would hurt them. Demanding a high tax on property is unlikely to be popular. And evidently, Policy makers themselves are rarely teenagers. But what puzzles me is that young people have been shy to utter such grievances, with the Youth for Climate movement at notable exception. Perhaps this is a good thing, for who in their right mind would want friction between generations? Before you know it, you have a cultural revolution on your hands, right? Well, whoever said that every political struggle needs to turn violent, I'm guessing most older folks would want nothing more than their kids to be better off. A pro-youth party could appeal to them, as well as to the young. Stop discriminating the younger generation economically, do it for your children. If there were a staying alive party, perhaps dominated by the old, its slogan might be, keep a social distance, do it for your parents. I don't know about you, but I can see the outlines of a grand bargain more economic quality of life for the young in return for more chance of living longer for the old. Perhaps an open political discussion between generations is what needed to do something about this very real problem. Is it unlikely that a virus would make this a reality? Unlikely, but hardly more unlikely than COVID saving the climate. That was it for today. I hope you enjoyed my little dystopian tour. If you didn't, well, next time I'll try to go for something more cheerful, I promise. See you next time. Bye.